0: Good-looking group tonight. You guys look good. Thanks for being here. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors at the Restoration Project. We've been going through a series for the past 19 weeks on the book of Isaiah. Uh, we've been specifically looking at Isaiah 40 through 55. And for those of you that have spent time with us, you know that this set of text is in the context of exile. Israel has been removed from the land, have been judged for their sins. They have been brought to ruins in many senses of the term. Through that, they've begun to question the relationship that they have with God. They've begun to question if he still cares, if he's still present, if involved in, in their lives. And in the midst of that, they've sat amongst a Babylonian culture where all these other rival gods are around the way, and they look very compelling to them. See, with Babylon, these, these wars were almost money in the bank. Seems as though their God was looking out for them more than Israel's God was looking out for them. And they've begun to to question all of these things. And we've we've kind of been marching through this text. It's been one that's set with the message of the poet where he says, Comfort my people. God is giving you comfort. God will bring about restoration and healing. God will be present in your life. He is now, he's got a plan. Just hold on and wait to see how this works out. The common refrain from Israel at that time is God has no concern for our mishpat, our justice, our rights, our causes. He's not concerned in any way in our life. In chapter 49, they even say he has abandoned us the poet keeps coming back with force over and over and over again saying, that's not the story, that's not the story, listen, hold on, God is with you. And we've been talking about how that's so true in our context as well, where the things that happen to us kind of set us in this place where we begin to doubt, we begin to wrestle, we begin to struggle with whether or not God is present in our own lives. Whether those battles that we're fighting are health issues, financial issues, employment issues, relationship issues, school issues. It seems as though there's something out there on the side that's more compelling than the gospel at times for us. And for many of us, that might be where we are. We've, we've given up. And the words of the poet or the words of the preacher are, just hold on, to which you say, no. He has no concern for me. Last week, we looked at the third of the servant songs in this set of texts. There's four of them. We'll get to the fourth one in a couple weeks. Uh, But in this third servant song, we saw the servant who is kind of like Israel personified and whittled down into one individual who's becoming the representative for this people. And last week, we saw that the servant has on his lips words that will speak to the weary. And with that background in mind, we kind of keep marching on into this set of texts that Anna read for us in chapter 51. We'll be looking at a a few verses of that tonight, and I kind of want to break it down into three different sections. The way this text works out is there's commands all over the place. Commands in particular that this audience listen or give ear to or pay attention or hear the message. You can see here right in this first verse, it says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Now, what's interesting about this text, when we hear that phrase, you who pursue righteousness, we automatically think the moral people of the bunch. We automatically think that these are the folks within Israel that are still striving to follow God, that are still kind of locked into that. They're still seeking the Lord. They're still pursuing righteousness. And for some commentators, that's exactly where they camp out. And they say, the speaker here has found that remnant group who is still on board with what God is doing. But it seems as though in this set of texts, remember that common refrain is, he's abandoned us, he's gone, he doesn't care for us, he has no concern for us. It seems as though if the speaker was looking for that group that is still following, He's going to be looking for a long time because those people don't seem to be there. So, what other people have done is they, they've reread this text, and I hope this doesn't really mess you up too badly tonight, but I want to kind of reread this text and frame it in a different way that seems to make more sense in the context of the, the larger chapters that we've been looking at in Isaiah here. It says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. John Golden Gaze says this Righteousness is is Yahweh's commitment to do the right thing by Jacob or Israel. It's Yahweh's act of salvation looked at from another angle. So pursuing it suggests longing for that act of deliverance. The people that were pursuing righteousness were not the moral people. They were not the holy people. They were not the people that were still clinging to God. They were the people that were wanting God to do something. See, this term righteousness has a lot to do with interpersonal relationships, whether they be this way or whether they be this way. It's not just you sit in your closet, read your Bible, and pray, and then you grow, grow, grow. We could sing that song if we wanted to. i got some other songs on cue for tonight, so I'll let that one be for the moment. But here, it's this idea that God needs to make good on what he said he was going to do. It's almost like there's a a tinge of anger in the voice of these people saying, Do something. Do what you said you were going to do. The prophet is speaking to those people in particular. Continues, he says, similarly, seeking Yahweh is not a general devotional religious activity, but pressing Yahweh to act on their behalf. It's finding that group of people that are in the midst of doubt, in the midst of skepticism, in the midst of hurting, in the midst of the hospital rooms, the graveside services, in the midst of the pain of not being able to pay bills, are saying, do something. That's the community that he seems to be talking to. It says, listen to me, you people that want God to do something. Listen to me, you that are still pursuing him, hoping that he's going to deliver you, because look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man, and I blessed him and made him many. This text here is saying you have doubts, you have skepticisms, remember the story. Remember the story where God did something great. And for us, this is not that big of a deal because we think Fa- Everybody knows? Father Abraham had many sons. So let's stop. This is for the church, folks. If you haven't been in the American church or spent any time in Sunday school, then this is going to be completely foreign on you and we're going to look like a bunch of idiots. But that is okay, right? Father Abraham had many sons. You've got to stand up for this one. Many sons had Father Abraham. Who are my people? Doug's my person, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot. Nod your head, turn around. Father Abraham had many sons. Okay, yeah, let's sit down. That was, en- that was enough. Enough butchery there. That Sunday school story for this idea of Abraham and the things that were happening there, for most of us, it's kind of lost on us as what God did. For ancient Israel, Abraham was not just the father, but yeah, he was the one to whom God promised a whole bunch of stuff. He's going to make his name great. He's going to give him people. He's going to make kings come from him. He's going to make nations come from him. He's going to bless the earth through him. In Genesis 12, it talks about Abraham basically becoming the guy. Think about it for a second. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it's a nightmare. God creates things, that's great. Sets some people in a garden, that's great. They have some fruit and they're naked, that's that's great. But then they do what God tells them not to do and sets the whole world in this trajectory of sin. So we see the fall, as theologians call it, and the effects that happen through the fall. In the very next chapter, we have kids killing brothers. We have the worldwide flood or at least a flood in that story where God is judging people because they're to the height of wickedness. We see the Tower of Babel where people are trying to build this structure up and ascend into the heavens, which is weird because at that time, God was descending almost. So it's like they're going up to find him. and He's down here saying, where are you guys going? What are you doing? These first 11 chapters kind of set the context where sin has led to all of these things, all these problems. And in Genesis 12, God says, Abraham, you're my guy. It's through you that I'm going to promise to do great, great, great things. I have the, the name here or the, the age next to this set of texts where Abraham is 75 years old when that happens. So he gets a promise and he's waiting for it to happen. One of the big keys of this promise is that he's going to have kids. Remember, Father Abraham had many sons I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Like, that's part of the Sunday school song. Dude's 75 years old and doesn't have any kids yet. In Genesis 15, we see God showing up again. I want to read some of this to you, if you don't mind. In Genesis 15, we see God showing up again. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. See, here's the deal. God promises Abram kids. Abram doesn't have kids. What potentially could be a span of 11 years in between the initial promise and this moment have passed, and Abraham's saying, what gives? What's cool about this text, it continues, and God makes a covenant with Abram, and the way that he does that is he gets him to go get some animals, and he gets him to cut those animals in half, and he gets them to put them on either side of the aisle, almost like making this kind of sweet little aisle. Sounds weird. In the ancient Near Eastern context, though, so what happens is two kings would usually walk through this tunnel of massacred animals, saying to each, well, to each other, the terms of this deal, if I break them, you can do to me like these animals. You can cut me in half, basically. What's interesting about this text, though, is after the animals are set in their place, God puts Abram into a deep sleep, and he goes through the line himself, saying, I'm going to take care of this. You just, you just hold on. I'm going to take care of this. But still, Abram at this time is, is 86 years old, not having any kids there's this interlude here where Sarai and, and Hagar happen. Sarai is Abram's wife. She doesn't have any kids. She says, which is common for an ancient Near East uh, Eastern woman to think, this is a bad thing. Abram, husband, why don't you go ahead and hook it up with Hagar, our maidservant, have a kid through her, and maybe that will be life for me. Abram says, okay, perhaps timidly. Um, But they end up having a kid. When Sarah sees the kid, she gets ticked and says, this isn't what I meant. And then they go away, sends them away. So we have this weird interlude where they're trying to take matters into their own hands. Fast forward a little bit further into Genesis 17 and 18. This promise is still there where Sarah is supposed to have kids, but she's not having any kids. Abram at this time is 99 years old. This is 24 years after the initial promise. Think about that for a second. God sends something out to you and says, this is going to happen. Your thought process might be week, month, year, but probably not 24 years. So what's happening as this is going on, we see people beginning to doubt. We see people beginning to ask questions. Um, In this set of texts, three strangers show up and give this message. Uh, When Sarah hears the message, she's standing outside the tent. She starts to laugh. The interchange is is priceless. I want to read it to you. This is Genesis chapter 18. It says, They said to him, these are the messengers, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. Don't you love Bible translations? They're really cleaning up things for us so you don't have to have that awkward conversation with your five-year-old kid what's the way of the woman? Don't worry about it. You'll get there. The way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied that this happened, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. End scene. Like, they don't pick that up any further. Just Sarah's laughing, and then she says, I didn't do it. Yes, you did. Moving on. And it's like, just kind of like, break. You know, it's like curtains. I think that text is awesome. But here we see the child of promise is not born until that next year, as the messengers had said and as God had said initially in Genesis 12. But this has been a period of 25 years where they're waiting for something to happen. Why would the poet go back to this story? Why would the poet lead a song of Father Abraham? Because it's improbable. Because God's taking a barren woman, the way of the woman had gone from her, and he's doing something in the midst of that. He's bringing life out of death. For an audience that was in exile, they were in death, waiting for life to happen. Okay, So here, the author of Hebrews even puts this into our terms. It says, and so from this one man, that's Abraham, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. The promises of Genesis 12 were brought to fruition in this person despite all odds and despite a long time, despite their faithlessness. Abraham was kind of of an idiot at times. But God makes good on his promise. So the, the poet's looking back at this story saying, remember that bit back there? Remember how Abraham and Sarah, though they were all old, brought life, and that's where we all came from, and God did that. He continues and says, because the Lord will surely comfort Zion. Remember, this is, listen to this message. Look at Abraham and Sarah. Remember their story. The Lord will surely comfort Zion, the place that had been destroyed at the hands of the Babylonians, The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion. That's another comfort word there on all her ruins. Remember in Isaiah 40, it's comfort my people. And here the author is going right back to that. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. In the midst of the stuff that you're going through, God's going to take the desert and turn it into Eden. He's going to take the wastelands and then make life come from them. When you think desert, it's dry, it's barren, there's no water, not a real good chance that any fruit is going to show up. In the desert, there's no life there, right? So what happens is God is taking that and completely reversing it into garden, bringing life out of death. The Lord is surely going to comfort his people, the people even in the midst of doubt. The Lord's righteousness, the fact that he has care and concern for his people, that's surely going to appear and the Lord will reverse the situation. I think there's implications for us as a people right now because some of our situations need to be reversed. And for some of us, we're in that waiting period. And perhaps for some of us, that waiting period has led us to ask the same questions that this ancient group is asking. God, does he even care about me anymore? I think the message of the poet is still appropriate for us. Listen to these words, look back to the story, and know that God can reverse even your situation. Okay, so the second phase of this text, it says, listen to me, my people, hear me, my nation. Again, we see that framing verb there, listen, pay attention, give heed, hearken. Instruction is going to go out for me. My justice will become a light to the nations. All throughout these last couple chapters, the nations have been a huge player God is not just concerned about his group of Israelites in exile. He's saying, that's good, but we're going to go beyond that, and you're going to become a light to the nations. My justice is going to go out. When they see the things that I do for you, it's going to mean life for them too. I think there's a call there for the church, because sometimes it's easy for us to sit in these sweet, red, padded pews and be concerned about us and our holiness and our righteousness but if that doesn't touch the people outside, then we're failing. If our lives don't become a beacon of hope for the nations, then what are we doing? So he's saying, my justice, when they see that, it's going to become a light to the nations. My righteousness is going to draw near speedily. My salvation is on the way. And remember this, in this historical context, they're waiting for deliverance. That deliverance is going to show up through Cyrus the Persian, and it's very close it's right there. Some of these people have written it off and they have kind of said it's not going to happen, but it's so close. And that's what the poet is saying. It's going to happen. My arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait and hope for my arm. Lift up your eyes to heavens. Look at the earth beneath. Again, here we see this listen and then look framework in these texts here. Listen up or lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment. My salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. Here's the promise. Righteousness and salvation, God doing something, God delivering people, it's almost here. Hold on. For us, we're on the other side of this. It's not out there somewhere. It's already happened. We'll talk about that in in a bit. But for these people, righteousness and salvation is almost there. And this impacts everyone forever. Forever. It's not just Israel, it's everyone around them. It's hope and life for the Babylonians as well, for these people that have brought about judgment, perhaps. And it's going to be something that continues on past their own set of circumstances. In the third set of texts here, it says, Hear me, you who know what is right. And again, this is not a moral commentary on people that are doing the right things, but people who know and understand that God is one who is going to show up and do something. It's the people that know and understand that God does have care and does have concern, and there's like this kind of double-edged sword here, where they they keep having to reinforce that to the people that have potentially written him off. It says, "You know what is right, you people who have taken my instruction to heart, do not fear." The whole text here, these last seven verses, lead up to this one crescendo where it says, "Stop being afraid. You're in exile. You're doubting everything." Do not fear the reproach of mere mortals or be terrified by their insults. Drop down to the bottom there. My righteousness will last forever. My salvation through all generations. The poet keeps coming back and saying, stay with me, stay with me, stay with me. God's doing something in your life. How do we apply this? I think there's four things that we can bring out of this text. For us, that call to listen the words for the weary still stand true? The words are very different in our context, so it's not wait for God to do something. It's God has done something already. It's the gospel. It's the message of hope and peace and life through Christ that allows us to have hope. And sometimes someone needs to show up and say, listen, remember, don't forget. Listen to the words for the weary and look back to our story. You could do this in two ways. In the first way, you could look back to to this story where we see Jesus showing up at a specific moment in history, becoming beyond the servant of Isaiah, becoming the representative of all humanity, living a perfect life and dying for us. You could also look back to your story seeing how that potentially has been applied in your life. For me, it's four-year-old Bible school where I'm wearing my orange floral print bathing suit trying to impress a young lady. Because when you want to impress a young lady when you're four, you wear an orange floral print bathing suit. My students know that. I've taught them that. The story continues where I meet all these different people at different stages of my life that have encouraged me, whether it's a group of sophomores on the high school soccer team that say, you're better than what you're doing, But Jesus loves you in spite of it. Jesus loves you in the in the middle of it. It's the the professors that I have at Bible College, it's the friends that have surrounded me and continued to be that light to the nations that have influenced my life, and without them I wouldn't be right here. For some of you, you have a story similar to that, whether it's this person or that person that played a role in your life, and you can look back to your story. And for some of you, that's so far removed that it's almost like a figment of the past where you say, It's all changed. Listen to the words for the weary and look back to your story and don't give up on it yet. Don't chalk those experiences up as just things of the past. Yes, we've grown. Yes, we've developed. Yes, we've begun to ask different questions. But still, there's that that idea that we're we've become a part of this story and don't forget that. The third thing is we should expect the righteousness of God, especially if we're thinking about it in this different way where There's some kind of concern that he has for us and that he's involved in our lives. And for some of us, we've stopped expecting him to show up to do anything. Because the prayers that we prayed 10, 15 years ago were not answered in the ways that we wanted them to. We've just decided that he's not one who cares about us anymore. I think it's important for us to continue to expect great things in this community and beyond to expect healing, to expect deliverance, to expect restoration. Goodness, it's our name for crying out loud. But it's like sometimes it's just that. Doug and I's prayer from day one has been, let us see something, let us experience it, let us as a community be people that know that restoration happens, not because we talk about it, but because we see it in the lives of the people all around us. And some of those stories are happening. And I would encourage you to raise your voices and to let us, uh, let us in on those, on those stories. So it's important for us to expect God to do something, to be involved in our lives. And then number four, we should expect the righteousness of God or his involvement in our lives even in the midst of exile. Looking around the room, I know that some of you are in tough places. Looking around the room, I know that some of you are just in a place of callousness and jadedness not expecting, maybe not even hoping anymore because you're tired of being let down. I think it's important for us to see God working and understand that he does that in ways that we don't always anticipate. Being light to the nations, it's, it's what we do. And the call to us who, who aren't jaded and callous, are we being that for other people? Are we showing them love and forgiveness and mercy through who we are. This text, again, and most of these texts that we've been looking at are challenging. I think this one in particular uh, brings some things to the fore here, which are especially appropriate for our community. We need those words to bring hope to the weary, and I hope that we haven't lost sight of the fact that those words don't come through council of friends or an encouragement or a book, they come from the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God, which took place on your behalf to give you life, to give you hope, and ultimately to give you that comfort that's so present back in this text as well. So hopefully, regardless of where you are, you can hear those words and they can begin to seep through the cracks. As you continue to process what these words for the weary are, and I would submit to you that those words are Jesus and his unending love for you. Despite our failures, despite our doubts, despite the times when we try to make our own way, hold on to that hope.